Texas, it's the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker, with today's guest, Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. It is a beautiful day in Austin, Texas, and we are happy to have in the studio Commissioner George P. Bush. Welcome to the studio. Good to be with you. What are we doing here? Uh, we should jam- be outside. Jamming out to that music, apparently. <laughs> yeah, um, Rob Baird has a, uh, a charmed life. Just being around that guy, um, you can tell he, he goes with the wind. Is, is that what your days are like, George? You just flow with the wind. Uh, absolutely. When I when I come into the office, it's a similar kind of theme song when we come in, <laughs> um, particularly before those uh, riveting online lease sales that we hold. <laughs> so, so you you have your staff uh, welcome you into the office with music every day. Oh yeah, this, yeah. that was one of the uh, biggest perks of public service when. Uh, thinking about running for the land office was uh, I'd be serenaded as I come in by staff and uh, welcomed as if I were Roman Empire. I didn't know that was an option. Now that now that I do, that's pretty fascinating. So Commissioner Bush is the commissioner of the general land office of the state of Texas. I'm going to give the audience a little bit of background before we start talking about your job and what you do and things of that sort. You were born in Houston, Texas. You grew up mostly in Florida. You came back to Texas to go to Rice University, played a little baseball. You went back to Florida and taught in the public schools. And then you came back to Texas <laughs> uh, to go to the University of Texas Law School. Um, That's a lot of back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> what were you doing? Were you, uh, you know, breaking in some new tires, smuggling gators? Try, yeah. Trying from to Florida. get some frequent flyer miles? Or? Well, you can't sell gator burgers in Texas, so. <laughs> I, th- I saw that I thought there was a market there. Uh, no, I, you know, I was a kind of a journeyman, um, you know, before going to law school and meeting my beautiful wife, uh, who Trey knows. Um, yeah, we'll get to but, that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> but those, you know, those two years before I went to UT Law were important for me because, um, you know, my, my early experience in teaching in a rural uh, migrant farming community in South Florida really defined my viewpoints on education in terms of the reforms that we need to bring to uh, to public schools, but also jumping on a presidential campaign. Um, most people don't know that I jumped on with my uncle's campaign, and it was based here in Austin when he was still governor. And so uh, after I finished a year, this is these were the days before Teach for America, and so uh, I wanted to kind of craft something similar to that um, commitment and um, had the chance to jump on. I you started out without pay here in Austin, so I just kind of moved here and figured things out and then was deployed to areas like New Hampshire and Iowa, had a chance to work with uh, Carl Rove during that campaign and just learned so much. And so whenever I talk to young people coming out of college and they ask, you know, whether it's about politics or even just grabbing a job, I always recommend getting on a national campaign. I mean, I think at the end of the campaign, I had already traveled to more than 40, 40 states and there's no better way to learn more about your country than serving on a national campaign. So it's good deal and lucky to, to get into UT Law at the same time. So was your degree from Rice in education? My degree was actually in history and political science. Okay. And these are the days before the Baker Institute uh, was created, which offers now kind of three different majors all rolled into one, um, which would have been more interesting me, to me at the time, but it wasn't, wasn't around. And um, towards the tail end of kind of figuring out 
what I want to do with my life. I still don't know what I want to do with my life, uh, for that matter. But welcome to my world. But uh, um, that's something that we both deal with, I guess. But no, I um, to to kind of uh, figure out what I want to do with my first job. I was always attracted to mentoring. Um, you know, whether it was in high school or in college, worked with a Catholic charity at Rice University, where we would go to the Third Ward and. Uh, work with young school kids, particularly those that didn't have English as their first language, and right. kind of worked with them on that. So I, I just kind of gave it a whirl um, through the education department, and there were summer internships available. And that's when I knew I wanted to try my hand at teaching. Sure. And so um, I really you know, hadn't thought about grad school. Um, didn't I mean, to this day, like I said, I haven't figured out what I want to do. And so um, it gave me a chance to go back home, be closer to my dad, um, who was at the time running for governor still right. Uh, right. the second time around. Most people don't realize he lost his first time. So that, to me, it served two, two purposes, really, to be closer to my folks who I hadn't had a, time, uh, a lot of time with and because uh, he had devoted himself to public service, and um, I had a chance to get my first job. Nice. So did you work on your dad's campaign as well? I did, yeah. I, I kind of did a, um, a tour there when he was running for, um, for office, after helping out my uncle, so it gave a chance to um, to to do a little bit of both. Is it a and, little uh, different though? Working for your uncle, you get probably treated, you know, a little more like uh, um, one of the regular guys. I imagine whenever you work with your dad, it's always got to be a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was a different role. I mean, in '99, um, you know, here in Austin, it had really kind of an awesome outsider buzz to it in terms of the campaign and. Um, I had a different role, clearly more defined. You know, Joe Allball was kind of the COO, if you will. And right. as you know, he ran a tight ship. And, uh, you know, there was a, a clear chain of command. And um, I, I knew my role immediately working on Hispanic outreach. And then, you know, younger students, particularly in Iowa and New Hampshire, where, you know, you have thousands of new students that come on the voter rolls, but typically campaigns aren't, you know, pinpointing. So, um, so that, that was a, a specific tailored niche. And I think in a national campaign, that's the biggest difference between that and a state campaign where, you know, I was more kind of serving as a surrogate and kind of going from venue to venue and speaking on behalf of the candidate. So, um, little, a little bit different. And, uh, in Florida, it's almost, you can almost say it is a national campaign because the difference between Northern and central and Southern, Southern Florida, I mean, it's, Big just, difference. it's just different. Yeah. So when you were when you were campaigning for your uncle, what what was the best experiences you had on the campaign trail? I would say, um, again, it's just hitting college campuses and high schools. I, I think at the end of the day, I hit over a hundred um, on behalf of my uncle, which was great. So you'd have been about twenty two or so, right? Because I, I think we're the same age, and so around turn of the the century. Yeah, I was 22, 23. We were all terrified of Y2K. Yeah, exactly. Are we doing all this for nothing? All and this campaigning, is it for nothing when all the planes drop apart. from the sky? Absolutely. An AOL dial-up. Oh. Uh, that's what I was afraid of. Um, no, it's uh, around that time, you know, and, and that's what I loved about it is, you know, didn't have um, that much responsibility. And to be able to live in California, New, New Hampshire, cold, I will not recommend for anybody, uh, even my worst enemies, but... Um, but just a great, great experience, especially when figuring out, you know, whether or not to apply to, you know, grad school. But, but, um, but I mean, who can forget the experience on election night here in Austin, right. you know, in 2000. Right. That was intense. And, um, it, you know, the, 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 just the feelings of complete joy 
on one side early in the evening and then being told by Don Evans, okay, you know, this could be a little bit longer. It's going to be a long night. Yeah. Well, so, then getting to meet everyone's best friend, Hanging Chad, <laughs> who who knew what that was? Oh, everybody does now. Yeah. Not something, just a world event. It just I remember watching that over at the Driscoll, and it was just, you're going, I don't think there's get, there's no results yet. This thing is not over. And it wasn't over the next day or the next day or the next day. I don't right. remember how long it went on, but it was weeks, correct? Absolutely. It brought us to you know mid-December yeah. in terms of litigation. Thankfully, I wasn't a lawyer at that time. Then I, I wouldn't have been you didn't get to shipped it. out to Florida right. for all that Count glory. Count some chads. Uh, well, I remember, I think I was on the building next door to where we are now in the studio. And I remember watching the motorcade leave the mansion and make a loop around the Capitol to come around, and I, I, I suspect to give a victory speech, right? And then the motorcade stopped and then went back to the mansion. And so we watched this happen, and everybody's wondering what just happened. You know, so you're kind of watching TV, but then you're watching that happen, and it was surreal. It was a real surreal moment. Hmm. I'll never forget it. But. So we've got listeners all over the state, all over the country, and, and some now we're acquiring around the world. So... For most people, we don't have to explain to them that your grandfather was president of the United States, your uncle was president of the United States, your dad was governor of Florida. So I assume growing up, you wanted to be um, like a firefighter or something. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you <laughs> if you go back and actually look at my old scrapbooks, I have, uh, I believe, a teacher, you know, a, a policeman, something along those lines. Right. I mean. Look, there, there may be something in the DNA of my family that requires us to go run for office. Um, I don't know if I agree with that completely. Um, of my, my amazing grandfather, George H.W. Bush's grandkids, I think there's 17 of us. I'm the only one now you know, in, oh. in public service who, oh, wow. who, are, who has run for office. Uh, my dad and my uncle were the only ones uh, of, of their generation to run. So, look, it's— um, So there's not a great pressure. Because I, I was asking Trey, I said— we well, you know the fact he's in politics. There, maybe there's a bunch of family pressure, but I hadn't thought about that. I mean, you're there's a bunch of other grandkids. They're not doing it, so there's not just this over, overwhelming, just like ah, when you come of age, <laughs> you will be elected to something. You, you will, my young man. No, it's uh, you know, I think there's pressure to serve others. You know, and that that's important. Uh, and there's no question about that. I mean, you look at Barbara and Jenna. In terms of what they're doing, sure. serving others, uh, Lauren, who's devoted herself to feeding um, folks in Africa, you know Pierce, who's now running the Big Brothers, uh, Big Sister system here in Texas. You'll see these values were communicated. And it's just it's just important, you know. And politics is politics has changed a lot from the days of my great grandfather, my grandfather, and you know it's not it's not meant for everybody, and um, it's not meant to be a lifetime, you know, calling as well, but. Um, but no, you know, we, we have all had a chance to see it behind the scenes. We've seen uh, the ups and the downs of it. And, um, you know, so we are blessed in that sense that kind of jumping into it, my wife kind of and, and myself had a chance to see what, uh, what the downsides uh, are what involved. What you're getting into. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. What, what made you want to go to law school? I think it was um, the intellectual challenge. I know that might sound uh, trite, but, you know, I heard a great quote from um, you know a friend of mine back in Florida, and that is that you can never practice law with a business degree, but you can always do business with a law degree. And um, you know, but my advice to younger people probably is a little different. I would say that unless you are absolutely uh, 
designed or desires to be the next Perry Mason, you know, maybe you should look at, at something else. Um, you know, and I, I could bore you all in terms of the details, in terms of where salaries are commensurate with in terms of student debt that you take on with sure. modern day law schools. But it's just it's hard to make it work, uh, particularly for, you know, the private law schools uh, out there. And so, look, it, it provided an incredible training. The fact that I was able to get UT was was awesome. Uh, I will say this: seven of my eight uh, first-year law professors signed on to the petition to the Supreme Court to reverse their Bush v. Gore decision. So, if, if, I don't know if that speaks to the uh, ideological underpinning mm. of uh, faculty, but yeah, hey. I think it does. I think it does, and that's pretty obvious to us all. But had you not gone to law school, you would not have met your wonderful wife, Amanda. That is correct, and that was that's the most important achievement of my legal career. So. I've known both of you for a while, and I know Amanda to be beautiful, motivated, intelligent, uh, driven. So what was the pickup line? How how did you make that happen? Well, the uh, story I tell is actually in Professor Hazel's class. Mm. It's actually a required class UT law, and it's um, just a basic course in terms of how you present a case. And it's one of the largest courses offered at UT law. There's over 200 students. And um, I just remember sitting behind her and uh, in class and thought that she was absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. But I noticed that uh, a few of our classmates um, agreed probably with that assessment. <laughs> and so... Um, Some elbowing going yeah, there, on. There's a, yeah, there's a little competition. And so... Uh, I, fight you know, club. <laughs> you deep fight club. <laughs> and um, so, I, you know, I was patient. And um, it may sound childish, but I actually wrote her notes. Oh, wow. um, well, this is pre-internet. That's not childish at all, really. <laughs> it was not that pre-internet. Was a, that, that was pre-internet. This was pre-internet. The millennials may tune out this part of this uh, discussion. <laughs> may not understand what this is about. But uh, no, I, I wrote her notes and asked her on a date. Uh, I did my, as a good intel officer would, um, did some background research and learned that she was an incredible golfer. I didn't know to what huh. extent until we got, got out on the golf course. But um, Did you embarrass yourself? Oh, is is uh, it's absolutely shameful, absolutely <laughs> shameful. I thought that uh, we could play straight up. She gave me eight strokes. Um, she beat me by nine strokes and drained a twenty foot putt on the eighteenth. Oh wow! Uh, we played at uh, Harvey Pinnock, just in uh, over, um, just outside of downtown. And uh, little known fact was that she actually scored a hole in, hole in one on the fifteenth, which is a par three in the state high school championship when she was a senior at Central High. That's amazing. I mean, she's uh, wow. an incredible, incredible athlete. But uh, yeah, she's she. Uh, we were, we played with two of our uh, buddies as well, and uh, she destroyed us all. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. Rest is history. So, so she felt sorry for you, I guess, and and thought, well, I'll go out with him again because he can't play golf. I got to <laughs> see what else he can do. Well, she said that I was the only guy that she beat on the golf course that actually followed through and asked her out on a date. You know what? Uh, I bet you that's absolutely true. No? Show security. Yeah, so absolutely. Hey, yeah, I was willing absolutely. to accept my loss and <laughs> take take it on the chin. <laughs> so you so you now have two beautiful sons, Prescott and Jack. Uh, how has that changed your life? Uh, for the better, but it is a challenge. I, I will not um, I will not lie to you there. the uh, The requirements of being a public servant, travel, uh, running a campaign hard to believe. I'll be back at it pretty soon. Makes it tough, you know, on a young family. You know, the uh, commitments are. Uh, are immense, but man, they're, um, they're a lot of fun. And so, um, 
you know, we love spending as much time with them as possible, but, you know, we have our, our commitments sure. to keep. How old are they? They're uh, almost four and two. Wow. It's uh, <laughs> so I have a five and a three. Oh. And I can, I can vouch for it is, it is all consuming. And, and it's not like, and it's not like being away only takes a toll or, or you perceive that it only takes a toll on the kid. I mean, as the dad, most people don't give you much credit, but it's hard. You miss being around them and you really, you, you miss seeing them in the morning and, but it does, they're also the motivation for the reason you're out there doing it in the first place. So absolutely, it pulls you in lots of directions, but they all, uh, they all, they're all pretty good. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a great gift and you know, it's forced me to be a better husband, I think as part of the process and I think a better person, you know, in, in terms of public leadership, I think it also changes your perspective because, uh, like you say, you're fighting not only for your selfish interests of your children's future, but also the, the future of uh, your constituents, children, and grandchildren. So would you encourage them to go into public office one day? I would encourage them to follow their passion, you know, and that's, um, it may or may not be in, in public service. Um, like I said, it's, it's challenging. Um, now that I'm on the other side of the ledger, I, I won't lie in saying that, um, you know, in talking with younger people, um, I want them to challenge themselves to make the world a better place. Um, public services, um, it's a challenge. It's different than where it was just, you know, in the days that we talked about in 2000. Right. So, um, you know, that's part of the system. It was meant to be that way. But uh, in terms of my sons, I just want to, I want to encourage their passion. So if my son loves uh, construction vehicles, and wants to be a caterpillar dealer one of these days. I'm going to support him in that. Yeah, you know? <laughs> which he does like fire trucks, doesn't he? Yeah, he loves fire trucks. He could be a firefighter. Well, and um, your wife was nice enough to give me a cupcake that she claims Prescott and Jack uh, made last week. So it was delicious. So they may be, you know, excellent chefs one day. Absolutely, um, we'll be in need for that. Artificial intelligence won't replace uh, chefs. <laughs> I will always I be eating. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> Yeah, whether so a computer you, makes so it or not, Charlie Hodge, you got that right. Um, <laughs> but talking about the future, what does the future hold as the Texas Land Commissioner? I mean, I guess in the long run, um, what do you hope to you know leave as a legacy after this office? And short term, what are you working on? Well, and do us the favor of telling the audience what the land commission, <laughs> what the land office does, because I'm sure some people are wondering. Absolutely. Well, you know, the land office really is steeped in, in history here in Texas. It's the oldest state agency that you'll find here in Austin. In fact, just southeast of here, you'll find the original general land office, which was constructed before the governor's mansion or um, the, the old capital. And it serves now as a visitor center. The modern day general land office is located in Stephen F. Austin, just north of the capital. But if you were creating a republic and you were starting a new country, you'd have two major focus. One would be clearing title, making sure that uh, settlers could actually uh, reside on the land and, and help grow the economic value of, of what they were meant to settle. And secondly, you would honor your military veterans that helped create that republic, that liberated that republic from Mexican Texas. And so those two roles actually carry on to this day in, in 2017. But since that time, you know, I liken it to a, uh, a problem-solving agency in the sense that uh, you know the governor, at times the lieutenant governor and the attorney general will commission our agency to take on additional responsibilities. And so in the modern day, that has included disaster recovery. So we are actually the third agency to take on a $3 billion block grant to help communities recover from Ike and Dolly. 
And um, that's just one small example. So to, to answer your question, we actually have 21 functional areas. I've tried my best to synthesize that into a very easy to follow uh, diagram that has three core focus in this modern practice, and that's coastal preservation, asset management, and veterans affairs. Um, in terms of answering a question in terms of legacy, you know, I'm, I'm a, a businessman um, in terms of uh, my background before jumping into public service. And I, I'm just proud of the fact that Texas has the largest education-focused endowments that you'll find in the country. We did the research, and our management, along with the State Board of Education now, manages the second largest education-focused endowment in the world, behind Harvard University. We're basically on its heels um, at, at $36 billion. Uh, with the correction of oil and gas, we'll see how that comes out in the, in the coming years. But my legacy, I, I would love for it to be defined by a continued, a continued asset enhancement in terms of accountability, the returns that we deliver. Uh, the last five years, we've just showed audited returns are 5% higher than any other public pension here in Austin, Texas. $200 billion is managed by public pensions here. Uh, we manage $6 billion, so small potatoes compared wow. to some of the other pensions. But we just reported um, a 15% IRR net of fees hmm. in, in the last five years. And so, so we want to continue that progress. So in a nutshell, returns mean money money's made off of lands that Texas owns? Or whether you're leasing them to oil and gas rights, or but just pretty much what Texas has, it's being put to use, and these are the revenues that come in? Absolutely. It's the latter. So all the mineral leases, royalties, bonuses that we sign with private producers on the 13 million acres that the state of Texas owns uh, has generated, uh, now it's north of $6 billion portfolio, $4 billion with third-party managers and so the 15% IRR that I quoted you is is investing in like-kind assets with uh, real estate, oil and gas, infrastructure, third-party managers that have delivered that return. And it's it's helped the State Board of Education um, and in, in some instances provided direct capital injection to the available school fund, which allow legislators to uh, to fund shortfalls and budgets sim similar to what we're seeing this session. There is one this session. So does does that money made off those those leases and lands go to help public education, University of Texas, Texas A and M, or all of them? So the uh, the, the two major buckets um, fund K through twelve and post secondary education. Uh, the majority of the K through twelve bucket is sourced by what is called the Relinquishment Act lands, predominantly located in uh, the geological basin known as the Delaware Basin which we're excited. We just announced a partnership with Apache where they assembled over 300,000 acres in Southern Reefs County. And um, they estimate that when they fully develop that, the, that acreage, we're looking at a $2 billion pop for wow. the K through 12 endowment. Then uh, I chair along with two of the UT border regents and, uh, and one A&M border regent, the University Minerals, which are located in the heart of the Permian Basin on the Midland Basin side of the Central Basin platform. And um, cha-ching, cha-ching, exactly. <laughs> it's coming it's, back uh, in a big way, right? Well, it's the the acreage has been some of the trades have been um, in excess of thirty thousand, forty thousand, fifty thousand acres, and um, it's to the benefit of school children. It's a unique model. We get calls from all of our counterparts in the Western States Land Commissioners Association in terms of how to build a better model, mousetrap for um, for funding public ed. And you know, again, if you look at 
any of the independent school districts or if you look at any capital bond offerings from post-secondary ed here in Texas, compared to Illinois, New York, New Jersey, the blue states, you'll see that our credit rating is uh, AAA, and it's all because of uh, the operations of uh, our agency along with Board of Education and others that are here in Austin. So that's a big responsibility, and, and I'm also of the understanding that you are now in charge of, of defending the Alamo. Is that correct? <laughs> that is correct. It, <laughs> Ex- it's, explain that. To the well, audience. it's it's probably like 5% of our budget, but 100% of our headlines, and uh, deservedly so. This is the cradle of Texas Liberty. It's the most visited, visited site in the state of Texas with over 2 million visitors a year. When I came into office, the five-year management agreement that was signed by my predecessor and the daughters expired. So I made the controversial decision to fire them. and The, the to, daughters of the Republic. The daughters of the Republic okay. of Texas. Who, right, had, who had managed Alamo up to that point, correct? That is correct. Okay. So they came in roughly the, in, the, in the 30s, and I should say that, you know, but for their management and stewardship in the 20th century, that the Alamo wouldn't be standing today. Uh, that was important. However, uh, there were findings by then Attorney General Greg Abbott, along with the legislature, that made the bold decision to move the day-to-day management to uh, the general land office. When I came in office, also AM finished their archaeological report, along with an architectural study that showed that if we did nothing today in terms of the Alamo and its management, it would deteriorate before our very eyes. And so we are in the process of a silent but painstaking process of auditing each stone in the Alamo to make sure that it's around for our children and grandchildren. Uh, I'm making another extraordinary request in this legislative session. We'll see if we get it sure. in light of uh, the tight budget, but um, it's it's important. It's a center point not, o- not only for communicating important values of the price of freedom, which needs to be communicated to future generations, but can be an educational focal point for public school kids throughout the state. And so... Um, so I'm committed to it. It's a priority of ours. So it amazed me to find out, I guess last year, year before, that Phil Collins, the musician, <laughs> is a major Alamo buff and had amassed this collection uh, of Alamo-related artifacts. I was just flabbergasted by yeah. this, but he has now donated all of that to the state of te- Texas. Is that right? That is correct. We couldn't be more excited. Uh, my predecessor signed an actual legal agreement with with the caveat that he would give his collection, which we are currently appraising, so we will publicly report the estimated market value on it, that a museum and visitor center would have to be uh, developed at or near the vicinity of the Alamo to house the collection. So we are now in year three. We have five years left and have some important work in front of us. But what a great great collection. He um, was honored on the floor of the legislature last session which was important that Texans did that. And, um, you know, since that, and most people don't know, but other great collectors of Alamo-related artifacts have come forward and generously given these collections to uh, the state, um, of which we will not identify until we're complete with the uh, master plan. But I can share with you that it's really generated uh, buzz. It was important in the last session to get our $31 in funding from uh, the legislature to have that commitment. The city's jumped on with another $38 So... It, it's coming together as a team effort, and uh, with that collaboration, I think we're going to be in good position by 2022, which is the 300-year anniversary of the original construction of the Alamo. Oh, wow. Isn't, isn't Phil Collins British? Yes. How did he develop a fascination <laughs> with the Alamo? Did he, 
Hey, I assume you've met him. Yeah, so he's he's coming into the office. He'll drop in on our uh, on our board meetings on occasion, and uh, he's he's just shared that he's always growing up had a fascination with the Alamo, not only just in, in history class, but but watching the old Disney movies and and John Wayne movies, oh, wow. and it inspired his er- early imagination. And he said, as soon as he was making money, um, both with Genesis and then as a personal uh, as a solo artist, he began that collection under an anonymous um, collector's name. Wow. And so uh, we've, um, it's funny uh, joke from all this is meeting with J.P. Bryan, who's another huge collector and has a very famous Texas history museum in Galveston, said, if I had known that that was Phil Collins, I could have gotten together with this mate (laughs) and uh, and collected together, but they were bidding against each other and probably pushed up prices. But it's, uh, it's a great benefit, again, to the state. Yeah. Charlie, what's your favorite Phil Collins song? Um, I hate to something in the spot. air. Is that what it's called? Sing so, it. Yeah, just sing it for us. I can feel it. <laughs> then the drum That's solo because he Absolutely. was the, the rarest of birds. Oh, yeah. The drummer slash lead singer. Oh, that is rare. That it is took rare. a special uh, mic setup to make that happen. Huh. Now I'm from Austin, and um. I was reading about in the paper. What's up with the golden cheek warbler? Is that something uh, oh. you want to comment on? I do. You know, I don't claim to be a, a, a biologist by any means, but I just think that when you look at the Endangered Species Act, um, and look, we're all outdoorsmen and outdoors uh, ladies in terms of uh, recreation here in Texas, but I think Texas has a unique perspective on endangered species where we can economically develop our resources but also take care of our environment. And so I'm very, I'm firmly committed that we need to look at science and evidence on endangered species. Since its creation, there's been thousands of species listed, but there's been less than, I think it's 10 basis points that have been delisted. <laughs> and so the original, I, I think there, it requires a paradigm shift on endangered species. I think we may be one of the first natural resource agencies to file, go to court and ask for a delisting of species based on the evidence that the warbler population has increased by 17x, based upon an in-depth and methodical A&M study. Um, I think what also kind of brought this issue to our attention was the fact that we deal with Veterans Affairs, and we actually hired the former garrison commander at Fort Hood to the general land office. And he said that the potential listing of it actually was creating an issue for military readiness on Fort Hood, the largest a military installation in North America where hundreds of thousands of acres were going to be uh, quarantined because of the Golden Cheek Warbler. And um, the fact is that more mechanized infantry not only transits through Fort Hood, but is is a training, a specific training mission for our men and women that are going downrange. And so when, when an issue like this is affecting military readiness, uh, that's where we decided to coalesce consensus not only with uh, researchers at AM, uh, at Fort Hood, DOD, and, um, and, and folks involved in natural resource management. So, you know, I, I want to be proactive, work with Controller Hager as well, because they actually house the, the program themselves in terms of doing the research and um, assessing ways in which we can just keep these cases out of the courtroom, because we're finding that's the most onerous impact on public policy is by allowing this to be time-consuming to allow plaintiff's attorneys to win uh, jury verdicts through sue and settle. Uh, we estimate millions of dollars have been awarded to Texas plaintiff's attorneys through this mechanism. So we've been working with uh, 
Senator Cornyn's office and other uh, members of the delegation here in Texas to just create a just a common sense solution. And uh, we think also with the new Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, that who's also out of Montana, that uh, we can have a more sensible approach to land management um, and defer more to the states. Sure. Have you talked to President Trump about birds? Not exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he uh, he actually reached out after uh, I endorsed him and. Um, and I didn't have a chance to visit with them, but we are pitching the coastal barrier system to qualify for his new infrastructure plan where he is uh, budgeted or is seeking to budget $1 trillion over 10 years. So, you know, we act interact with um, more with now Secretary Carson on HUD through the management of the block grant that I mentioned. Uh, we'll be working with Secretary Zinke on BLM uh, issues, as we've seen on the Red River. And also with EPA um, Secretary Scott Pruitt as well, um, not only on emissions issues, um, but, a, but a variety of uh, navigable streams and waters of the U.S. Uh, treaty issues. So there, there's a lot of work ahead of us. We'll be spending a lot more time in D.C. But, you know, as Republicans, we, we got we to gotta take this time to actually do something because the voters are watching and we made some promises on the trail and we got to follow through on them. Sure. So it is now March 2017, which means next year is an election year. So what do you see on the horizon uh, of, of the political landscape for next year? Well, you know, uh, as, as a conservative Republican, I reminded my uh, friends earlier this week, actually, at a Republican Party fundraiser that, you know, statewide, we're doing great. This is now the 22nd year, I believe, that we've had all of our statewide elected officials having an R next to their name and promoting good, sensible, conservative policies. We have record majorities in the House and the Senate, which is great. But I have a concern about urban counties, and uh, this is something that I focused on in my first campaign. Um, and in this campaign, I wanted to do the same, both in the primary and the general. Um, I probably will have a challenger, so I've got to uh, focus on the task at hand and run a rigorous uh, re-election campaign in the primary. Uh, but I want to focus on reaching out to, I call them the new Texans. And these are millennials that are n probably not getting many of their news sources, uh, even on TV. They're completely online and, and in a digital sphere, most of whom probably are, have been on the digital uh, landscape for, for the entirety of their lives. Well, Commissioner, they're all listening to the Trey Blocker show. Exactly. They're yeah, they're, they're getting their information on podcasts. That's right. Um, so th that's the that's the demographic that we got to hit, and um, and I'm committed to that, and also just reaching out to the fact that we have we're a majority minority state, and um, you, you particularly look at these urban counties, you're looking at two thirds, sometimes three fourth majority minority, so um, we've just got to continue engaging, and um, and so I'll, I'll be doing that on a small scale, in my campaign. So uh, and it all starts in local and county races. That's where. We, as Republicans, started emerging as the majority party in the state. That's how they're going to um, you know, target us. If you look at Battleground Texas and their tea leaves, their mission statement, you'll see that that's how they did it. Sure, sure. Well, I feel like we've just scratched the surface on all the responsibilities of the land office, uh, so we'd love to have you back sometime. Absolutely. And as, as we mentioned to you, we always like to end the show with some words of wisdom, uh, a Bible quote or a, a, a song lyric or something that means something to you. So I, I hope you brought us something fascinating. I did. Uh, Winston Churchill's, one of my favorite historic uh, uh, personalities, 
for so many different reasons. But I'll, I'll actually share with you two quotes. One is it shows his humorous side. Uh, I may be drunk, miss, but in the morning I'll be sober and you will still be ugly. That's one of my uh, favorites. And then um, you, ha- for particularly for today's politics, you have enemies. That's good. That means you stood up for something sometime in your life. And sometimes you can't be afraid to stand up for what you believe in. Um, I think Winston um, Churchill reflected that in his public leadership. Love the quotes, both of them. Have you noticed that everybody comes armed with two quotes? Yeah. I'm- I don't know. Maybe that's a trend. <laughs> Commissioner, thanks for coming on. Would love to have you back sometime, and good luck with, uh, with the rest of the session in the year. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Trey Blocker Show. Download episodes at treyblocker.com or from your favorite podcasting service. <laughs>